Now, what are the four worlds? The first world, in terms of the least amount of concealment, or Hester, or the greatest amount of Giloi, obviously, because it has the least amount of concealment, so it's the greatest amount of revelation. Therefore, it is the greatest amount of hasaga, or apprehension, or comprehension of the oneness of God. That is called oilum atzilus, from the word eitzel, which means to be near. That world is the nearest to God. That is why it is called atzilus, which means nearness. Who inhabits that world? The answer is no one. That is the world of the spheres or the divine emanations, the ten emanations, which I am not going to explain now. But in any case, the Oilumatzilus, which is the greatest amount of Gilui revelation, the least amount of concealment, and therefore the greatest amount of Hasoga, if there would be an entity at that level, is the spheres itself. Then God sort of contracted his being, so to speak, because God doesn't contract anything, because contraction itself is a created idea. Think about it. The next world is Bria, or the world of creation. Now, in that world already we find beings or entities that really exist. That is called the world of the throne, and a throne bears the king, he sits on it. This is the first world that bears God in a sense that it emanates from him as an independent being in its own right. And you'll understand that much more when we talk about Odom Kadmon. Now, because we're going to talk about the Merkava, the divine chariot, also at that time. Now, that world is inhabited by Chayos. They, they're called Chayos. They're, they're angelic being, beings of enormous quality of being. It's beyond our comprehension what they are, because they are in the existential plane where the revelation of God is mind-boggling. There's only a little amount of Hester even in that world. It's not the same as Atsilus, but it's more than Atsilus, but there's much less than what we know. Therefore, the revelation of God, the Giloi, is incredible, and the Asoga is awesome. That's the world of the Chayos. The third world, or Olam, or existential plane, is called the world of Yitzira, Olam Yitzira, or the world of formation. That also is inhabited by beings, entities. Those entities are called Malochim, or angels. They inhabit that third world. The angels that we know about, well, that we hear about. And there are many levels of Malochim. There are ten Madregas of Malochim. That's, that's not for now. Now, the last world is our humble abode, which is called Oilma Sio, the world of action or doing. Okay? Now, man inhabits this world. This is the physical world that we know of. Now, in this world, the level of Hester is enormous because it goes from Atsilis, where the level of Hester is very little, therefore, Gilu is enormous, and the Hasoga is enormous. And inversely, it goes down. So by the time it gets to our world, the amount of Hester is enormous. The amount of Gilo is almost non-existent. And the amount of Hasogi is almost nil. That's Oilum Hazeh, or rather Oilum Asiya. All four worlds are Oilum Hazeh because they exist now. 
That's why the Olam Hazer. But there are four worlds existing simultaneously, each one with a different degree of the transparency of who God is to creation. Now, besides man that occupies this physical world, there are other spiritual beings that occupy this world too. And when I talk about meditation, we'll get more into that, how it's possible to contact them. But anyway, this is the idea of the four worlds. Now, it is important to know that beings on any level comprehend only that level and below. In other words, if you have an angel, an angel comprehends <coughs> his world. In other words, he sees God as much more transparent than we do. God is all around, but he still has a very strong sense of I. Because remember, that is the manifestation or the expression of Hester in a being. But not, nothing near compared to us. He can see us and he can see our Hester. Because he knows what Gilu is, so he, it is easy for him to understand what the Hester is. But for him in Yitzir to understand what a greater Gilu is, is not comprehensible. <laughs> he cannot understand what it means for an existential plane to exist where God is revealed even more. Can't figure it out. And the world of the Bria, which is the world of the highest, he cannot figure out what the spheres are like. And believe me, they're dying to know. Because for one reason, because as soon as you lock into a little amount of Giloy, you go bananas. And, and I, I mean literally, well actually you die if you cannot handle it. The reason why the Jews died at the mountain of Sinai when God gave the Torah is because the Giloy which was given to them was so great they couldn't take being in their physical bodies. They burst the bond, and that was death, and they all flew back to God. They just saw too much. It was too much to handle. The desire to go back to God after he shows you who he is, is too much to contain. It's too much. In any case, this is the idea. So beings on any level comprehend only that level and below. They cannot comprehend that level and above, even though they are dying to do it. We who have no comprehension at all have no drive, unfortunately, because that is the oinish that we are under, that we have very little giloi, therefore we have very little drive. We don't have the taste of what kind of treasure lies in the worlds where God reveals himself. Now, another in important idea to know is that there are different kinds of being depending on the world you inhabit. In other words, the world you inhabit actually makes you a different kind of being existentially than the world below it. In other words, the kind of being, the atmos you are, depends on the amount of revelation of God that is present in that world. Therefore, it it, that will also de determine the amount of knowledge you have about God. That will also determine the amount of perfection you are, and that is the amount of dvikas you have. It's all the same idea. In other words, all these terms are equal in terms of the amount that they possess. In other words, dvikas means to cling to God. 
The amount that you can cling to God is the exact amount that He reveals of Himself, which is the exact amount of perfection that you are. Because the more you are in contact with He who is perfect, the more perfect you are. The further away you are from Him, the less perfect you are, because it follows. The further you are away from a perfect being, the more imperfect you become. Therefore, the amount of your zekas, the amount of your clinging to God, is equal, therefore, to the amount of perfection you have, which is equal to the amount of revelation of God, which is therefore equal to the kind of being you are. Because if you are less perfect of a being, you are qualitatively and existentially a different kind of being than another being in a higher world. And therefore your comprehension of who you are and other beings is also very different. Now, Nevuah or prophecy is an intrusional phenomena. In other words, Nevuah or prophecy is the phenomena whereby you can leave the body and perceive the higher worlds. Only man can do that. That is what prophecy is. Now you begin to understand what we lost. Prophecy is the ability of man to transcend Oilam his existential plane where there is a terrible amount of Hester, and he can go up into Oilam Yitzira, up into Oilam Bria, and shoot up into Oilam Atzilus. That is how high you could go with prophecy. In other words, he who was a true prophet, now you begin to understand what Moshe Rabbeinu saw. He who is a true prophet can jump through ways which we will talk about when we get to prophecy, which is part of meditation. He, you can jump from one world, one existential plane, one amount of revelation of who God is to the next, to the next, until you, it's like, it's, it, the, the experience is not describable in human terms. Because while you are still in your body, God has made it possible for a man or a woman to jump from his plane of Ilmasiya into a higher plane up to Ilmatsilus and experience the oneness of who God is while you are in Ilm Hazeb. That's what Navur really is. It's an intrusional phenomena. It allows you to intrude on the other worlds. In other words, the perception the perception of other worlds, or it allows you the perception of other worlds or their existential planes or dimensions while you are still in Oilam Asiya. And unfortunately, we have lost that. But there are probably certain <coughs> similarities which perhaps a person can do. But that is the beginning of your understanding of prophecy, which is part of the ideas of meditation. And that's why I had to go through the entire idea of Oilamas in order to give you that understanding. We now must examine the task of man according to the design of creation. In other words, what we have done until now is we have, we have examined the design of creation in a very concise manner. What is now next now in, in the agenda or in the shir is exactly what is man's task specifically that he must do that the Rabbani Shalom, that God wants him to do and if we perceive it correctly, this task must emanate exactly from the design that was stated last week.
Before we can get into the task, we must know that the purpose of creation is really three. There are three objectives that man must do. And it is the three fundamental ideas of why mankind was created. There is no other reason. This is the only three reasons why man was created. What are these three reasons? And I'm going to begin from the bottommost, which leads into the second, which leads into the third, and the third is the ultimate. Okay, the first objective that man was created for is called tikkun ho'ilomus, which means the restoration, the remediation, or the rectification of universes or worlds. What does that mean? What it means is what I said basically last week. The universe was created in a state of concealment of the divine presence. It was created not in one existential plane, but in four, which we had seen last week. Oilmatsilus, Bria, Yitzira, and Asiya, which is the world we inhabit. Now, obviously, as the worlds have more and more concealment, they have less and less manifestation of who God really is. Therefore, the deficiency that the universe was created in, initially, by God himself, we are not the cause of that deficiency, he is. The reason why he made it deficient is so we could have a, have, we could have a task to undo that deficiency. Now, that is called the chesaron habria, the deficiency that was implanted in creation. Now, what, is, what does it mean to masak and ilomus? to rectify or to restore worlds to their previous state. That means to remove the concealment of who God is, that A, that He is, that He is the only one that is, that He is the source of all creation, and that He is the absolute master. Those four ideas is what man must realize. And they are all included under the terms of Yichud Mitzi the absolute oneness, that total oneness that God is the only one that is, which means Eneid Mavadai, Besides God, there is no one else. And Yichud Shlitose, which means that God is the absolute master of all creation. Uh, he says what goes, period. Now, therefore, it is man's task to convert or to remove the concealment of, the con- the concealment of who God <coughs> is, to remove that throughout all the different worlds. That's the first task. Remove it. Let every, every entity throughout all existence, experience the revelation of who God is. That's the first task. It's Tikkun Hoilomus. When that job will be done, that will be called Tikkun HaKloli, the general fixing or the, uh, the general rectification or restoration of all creation to its original state. And what is that? The state where God revealed himself to be what he is in relationship to the universe. That state must be achieved now. When that is achieved, then and only then can the Mashiach come. He cannot come before. In other words, Mashiach can only come, Messiah, can only come when the Tikkunah Kloli, when in some way Jews, and that's who the ones who are doing it now, when they will have corrected creation to such an extent where God can now reveal himself in terms of who he really is. That's the first objective, is called Tikkun Oilomus, to correct creation. That creation should be from a state of Hesti Yechudoim, the concealment of who God is, the oneness of God, to the concealment, or, or rather to the state of Gil Yechudoim, who God is in terms of the absolute revelation of God throughout creation. Now, why does man have to do that? Why do I have to fix the creation? And the answer is, 
Because if you fix creation, you fix yourself. That's the next idea. You must restore yourself. When the soul was created originally, it was in a state of, a state of incredible revelation. It understood clearly who the Rebbeinu was. God sent the soul down to this world for the purposes of elevating itself and that it should be responsible for its own elevation. Therefore, we know from last week's year that the more you understand or the more you perceive who God is, the greater your being becomes. There is an actual existential change in your being. It's not that you know something or you feel something. No. There is a qualitative difference in the kind of being you are. Now, we don't know what that means because as far as we know, being is being, and that's the way it is. All being have the same kind of level in this world. But the truth is that existential planes change, and it depends on how much God reveals himself. Therefore, the more creation, uh, or the more creation allows the entrance of the presence of God, the beings in that universe change to reflect the perception of greater, greater uh, oneness. Therefore, the more the universe changes, the greater you change, literally, your atmos, your being itself changes in a way that is not comprehensible now. And of course, the change means that you get shlemus or perfection. That's what perfection means. Because God is perfect, therefore the more you are in contact with the fact that He is you or you are He, the more perfect you become. Because the more you are closer to a perfect being, the more perfect you become. The further you are away from a perfect being, the greater imperfection exists in you. Therefore, the second task of man or objective of man is by being in the ulum, by removing the veil of who God is in the universe, man himself changes and he perceives who God is, he has that asogaz yichudoi, and he achieves what's called tikkunatz musai, where he restores his own being to what it used to be before God concealed himself. Okay, now, <coughs> all the, the, both of these ideas are really for the last idea, and that is called tikkunamadik sufa. In other words, if God what God could have done is that he could have made man in the world called Ulam Habo and giving him, given him right then and there the ultimate state of who he is. Why did he have to put him in Ulam Hazer, which means this world, that man has to work for it? And then in order to perceive who God is in the future world, because the Rabbanishlam wants man to be responsible for his state, to be the actual cause for the state that he will create. In other words, God did not want to give the gift of well-being, <coughs> the gift of the perception of who God is for free. He wanted man to work for it. And uh, the simple idea there is that man is very much into self-respect. One of the most fundamental psychological drives in man is the assertion of self, without going into that extensively. If man is the recipient constantly of external things, then man becomes what's called embarrassed, but what really happens is man begins to lose his self-respect. Man must feel that he is, is, he is something, he is independent, he is worthwhile. Man gains a sense of, not superiority, but he gains a sense of self when man is productive, when man can assert his being. 
It is when you cannot assert being, when you are dependent on others constantly, that you begin to doubt who you are. You lose your self-respect. Therefore, what the revolution wanted is that man should not be the recipient of his good, thereby making man have this tremendous sense of inferiority or loss of self-respect. The revolution wanted man to earn this good. He should be responsible for his own state in the future world. He should have caused the future world. Therefore, God created man and he put him down in this world that man has to work to change his status and man will receive the exact revelation of God that he himself bothered to find out in this world. Thereby, whatever man gets, that is what man earned and therefore there will be no loss of self-respect. Whatever he did, that's what he gets. Therefore, the reason why the Russian put him in this world to work is what's called Tikkun of Namadik Sufa, which means to remove the concept of bread of shame, which means that if you receive bread for nothing, you then get embarrassed, which means that you lose self-respect. Therefore, in order to remove the feeling of loss of self-respect, in order to remove the feeling of worthlessness or inferiority, God made man work for it. Let him be responsible for the state in Ulam Habo, which is the future world, and that will remove the loss of self-respect that he would receive if he was not the owner, the agent, the cause, or the responsible agent for what he is now enjoying in Ulam Habo. In other words, man has to be responsible or cause his situation. That's it. Those are the three objectives. The, the most fundamental objective, why we created and placed in this world, is to uh, ensure that we work for our state of well-being. And what will give us that state of well-being? By removing the concealment of God in creation. And thereby, we ourselves will change to reflect the new revelation that God has in the universe. That's it. Three ideas. Tikkunamadik Sufa, the removal of the concept of inferiority. Tikkun Hoilomus, and that, the removal of that concept of inferiority is done by Tikkun Hoilomus, where man removes the concealment in creation, thereby ensuring Tikkun Atzmusoy, which of course is that man changes himself to reflect the new state of, of the revelation of God, and man is now enjoying an incredible state of well-being or bliss. That's it. Now, those are the basic three objectives, and that's really what it's all about. Now, the task of man according to the design of creation is what I want to explore now. How does man achieve that, obje those objectives? <clears throat> now, from last week we see that the basic design says that the deficiency in creation is what's called hesti yechudoi, the concealment of the oneness of God. This is the deficiency that God gave. The reward that man will achieve as a result of laboring to figure out who God is laboring to dispel the illusion that he is somebody and he is the cause of all his satisfactions, all his material status and so on, the reward will be the exact perception of the oneness of God that he worked for. That's called Hasogas Yechudoy, the understanding or the comprehension of the oneness of God and it will be exactly in the measure that you work in this world. Not one drop more. <coughs> there are no free rides in Ulam Habo. <coughs> now, the question then becomes, how does man do this? How do you remove Hesti Yechudai? Okay, now, the answer to that is called Edis Yechudai. You must, you must testify to the oneness of God. Aid, you must testify to the oneness of God. 
In other words, <coughs> the way the hester is removed, the way the concealment is removed, is by testifying that God is one. Then the concealment is removed. In other words, you must testify that about the reality that God is the source of all being and the only being that truly exists. Now, what is the interesting idea, <coughs> and it is really an incredible principle, is that the state of reality, in other words, the exact amount of concealment of God in this universe conforms to man's belief. Exactly how much you think God is the bottom of it. It's an amazing idea. God conceals himself or reveals himself depending on man's illusion or understanding. If man thinks God is absent, then God hides himself. If man thinks God is the, at the bottom of everything, then God reveals himself. Man is responsible for the exact amount of presence or absence of God in this universe. Not that we control God against his will, but God has subjugated himself voluntarily to the expression or the belief of man. So therefore, the reality of this universe in terms of the who God is conforms exactly to man's belief or his actions because the actions of man's, man is nothing more than expressions of his belief. Now, now, in other words, reality is determined by man's belief. You do not know how fundamental and how significant that principle is. Again, reality, in other words, who God is, his presence or absence in this universe, and I mean in this world also, is m actually determined by what we believe God is. Now, in other words, <clears throat> we create the existential plane by our actions, and our actions are in the service of Edus Yehudoi, testifying that God is the absolute one. In other words, the fundamental equation, and if I had to express it mathematically, and this mathematicians will appreciate, if I had to express it mathematically, the fundamental equation of Judaism is the amount of Hesti Yehudoi, the amount of the concealment of God in this universe, minus the amount of Edus Yehudoi, minus the amount that man testifies to the oneness of God, is equal to Gil Yehudoi, is equal to the amount of revelation of God in this universe. Okay? And of course, that means if the amount of Gil Yehudoi determines the amount that you perceive, which is the amount of Asogas Yehudoi. Again, the amount of Hesti Yehudoi, <coughs> the amount of concealment of oneness, minus the amount of testimony of that oneness equals the state of oneness that is perceived by man. That is the most fundamental equation in Judaism. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean when we say that God moves in or out of the universe depending on our, our statement of Him? That means that Jews, and that is the fundamental difference between a Jew and a non-Jew, now, it was not always the case, However, since the last 4,000 years, since the covenant that God made with Avram, which is the Brisbane Absurum, this is what was given over to Avram. That <clears throat> Jews have the power of tikkun and kilkul. Tikkun means that a Jew, by his actions, whether he thinks, speaks, or acts, that action of man it can actually move God in or out of the universe. If you do the right action, then God moves in the universe. If you do the wrong action, 
then God moves out of the universe. In other words, <clears throat> this is the concept that the Jew is a masakin, that the Jew is the only agent that can restore creation to its original status, because he is a masakin, he is a fixer, he is a restorer, he's the only one who can do it now. If a non-Jew wants to do it, he can also do it, but he must enter the covenant of Avram, which means he has to become a Jew. There is no other way. Um, that is the power of Tikkun. Now, obviously, if you can fix, you can also destroy. So therefore, the Jew can destroy also. What does that mean? Just like you have the power by your very acts to bring God back into creation, you have the power to remove him also. That is called kilku or destruction. <clears throat> so therefore, the Jew has the power of tikkun. The Jew is a masakin. When does the Jew acquire that power of tikkun? When he becomes a bar mitzvah. In other words, when a male becomes 13 years old, he acquires that power, not a day before. When a girl becomes 12 years old, she acquires that power too. It's equal among men and women. Both have the power of tikkun and kilku. Whatever you do, you can destroy, which means you can further the concealment of God in creation, or you can masakin, you can actually bring God back into creation. Now, just as something to grab onto, what does it mean when you bring God back in creation? What does that mean? That's, that's, what, what kind of metaphysical idea is that? It's very simple. <clears throat> in a very simple way, because it can be explained much more complex, what it means is this, that when you do a mitzvah, and we will see that that is the way you testify, and we'll see exactly why. When you do a mitzvah, for instance, what happens is God comes more back into creation because you are being masakin, you are bringing him back in. What happens to this world? Besides the fact that the other worlds change, God becomes more present, and they really see it. And they, are, of course, are enjoying it. This is the result of our acts. Something very interesting happens here. What happens is that evil diminishes. People who want to destroy, people who want to kill, people who, who want to um, uh, promote the idea of independent beings, people who want to promote the ideas of materialism, or just general evil, these people lose power to actually exercise what they want to do. For instance, all of a sudden we find the PLO, to give a good example, the PLO is ridiculed by the entire world, which is what happened a while back. Uh, what that means is that people who are evil, for instance the PLO wants to destroy Jews, they lose their power to be successful. That's what it means. The opposite of that, if the Jews do Averis, what happens is that they enable the PLO to go and do their acts. Now, not that they tell the PLO what to do, but what it means is that they want to destroy Israel. But what happens is they don't have the power. The only thing that can give them the power is the act of the Jew. And the only thing that the act of the Jew does is he removes God in or out. If the Jew does a mitzvah, God comes in, PLO becomes powerless to do what they want to do by their own free will. If the Jew does an Avera, God moves out, and all of a sudden, the PLO finds themselves enormously successful to do what they free-willed to do. It does not determine their free will. What it does, it gives them success in what they want to do. That's a small example of what it means that when God comes in or out, that evil prospers if he goes out, and evil diminishes or fails when he comes in. 
What does prosper if God comes in? What prospers is the promotion of the fact that God is. In other words, Judaism prospers, yeshivas have a lot of money, all of a sudden people are attending shurim left and right, because that's really where the, the direct promotion of who God is takes place. All of a sudden people are kind to one another, people who are involved in charitable work, all of a sudden find that millionaires are donating to them. All of a sudden the promotion of good, kindness, and belief in God is tremendously promoted. That's what happens. Those are some of the manifestations physically of what happens when God comes in or out. And who moves God in or out? Only the actions of the Jew. So if you thought that you were an important person, now you really know how important you are. Now, the idea is, <clears throat> so far, <clears throat> that the way to bring God in or out of creation is what's called Edus Yehudoi. In other words, this is done through the mitzvahs. What does that mean? It means that the commandments that God gave is the vehicle or the instrument. It is the dial or the lever. It is actually a dial that brings God in or out. You see? The object of Judaism is not to do mitzvahs. Mistake. The object of Judaism is to tikkun oilomus, to bring God back into creation and to give you the state of that restoration. The way to do it is by doing the mitzvah. You understand? In other words, the mitzvah is the instrument, it is the vehicle or the method by which we testify to the oneness of God. That testimony means that we change reality and God comes in or out based on our testimony. In other words, reality reflects our statements. <clears throat> in other words, we, through the mitzvah, have the dial of the presence or absence of God. Now, you may ask now, how in the world does a mitzvah do that? How does a mitzvah declare the unity of God or not? Okay. If you think of it, when you do a mitzvah, and I'm going to give an example, and the truth is it goes for all mitzvahs. When you do a commandment, there are three levels of conflict. For instance, let's assume that you're very tired, it's raining outside, and the question is, should you come to hear a shir or not on Hashkofa? Now, we're assuming that to come to a shir on Hashkofa is a very commendable act. It's also Talmud Torah. It is also what God would like you to do because that's where you can reinforce your beliefs. So I am assuming it is a big mitzvah, and I don't have to assume it happens to be because you all fulfill the mitzvah of Talmud Torah by coming. Now, let's assume <clears throat> that it's, it's getting late, and you don't know if you want to go. There's a great picture playing. There's a great movie playing. There's a great boxing match going on. Whatever's going on. Uh, whatever's going on, but there's something great going on. Now, you don't know why. You don't know. <coughs> Sounds like I hit a chord. You don't know. You don't know if uh, you don't want to come to the shir or not. You don't know. There's something great going on. Okay. So the first level of conflict is the act itself. Should I come to the shir? Should I come to the shir and listen about who God is to understand the depths of Judaism? to become, to reinforce my ideas and to derive tremendous amount of support uh, uh, and reinforcement toward Judaism? Should I do that or should I not do that? Let me go and enjoy myself wherever I want to go. That's the first level of conflict. The conflict of the act itself. Should I go to the shir or not go to the shir? Now, is that the idea of the mitzvah? 
No. There's a second level where the conflict is really manifest. And that level is conflict of will. Should I go to the shear because God wants me to go to the shear? Or should I stay home because I want to stay home? You see? So now it is no more a level of conflict of the act. It is now conflict of wills. Whose will is going to dominate? Mine or his? And every commandment has that conflict. Because the commandment means it's his will. And we have to decide if we want to observe. So every commandment has that conflict. Should I listen to the commandment or not? The second level is, should I do what I want to do? Or should I do what he wants to do? It's a battle of will. But have we reached the, the, the understanding of what the mitzvah is? Not yet. Because we do not see Yehudo yet. There's a third level. There's a third level that is behind the mitzvah. And that is the most profound level of all. <clears throat> should I come to the shear? Should I listen to the will of God? Why should I listen to the will of God? Because He is the only being that exists. Therefore, obviously, His will is the only thing that really is. And if I don't listen to His will, it's I'm merely under an illusion that I think I am an independent being of God. Or name. I, want, I don't want to come to the shear. I want to do what I want to do. Why is it I want to do what I want to do? Because I exist independent of God. Besides Him, I also exist. Therefore, I am entitled to exercise my will in the direction that I want to. You see? So therefore, the first level is a conflict of act. The second level is a conflict of will. And the third level of the mitzvah is a conflict of being. That level, of course, is statements of unity or not. Is God God is the only thing that exists? Therefore, I must listen to Him and do the act in His will. Or, no. Besides God, I also exist. And some people say, God doesn't exist at all. I'm the only one that exists. That's the other level. Where a person says, I will not do the act because I want to do what I want to do because I exist independent of God. Therefore, we see that the mitzvah ultimately has three levels of conflict. The bottom level is really a statement. Do I exist independent of God or not? Is God the absolute oneness or is he not? That's really where it's at. Just like every mitzvah is that conflict, obviously if you do an avera, a sin, that's the opposite statement. In other words, if you do the mitzvah, what you're really saying is what? That I will do the mitzvah, I will come to the shir, I will do what he wants me to do, because he's the only being that exists. What are you doing? You are testifying by your act, whether that act be a thought, a, a speech, or, an, or, or a, an act itself, you are testifying that you believe God is the only being that is. Therefore, you must do His will. If you do a sin, it's the reverse testimony. That God, that I will not come to the shear, I will do what I want because I exist independently of God, or perhaps I am the only one that exists altogether. Therefore, I do, want, do not want to do this mitzvah. That is a testimony that I exist independent of God, which is contrary to the reality of Enid Mavadoi. Therefore, every mitzvah or every sin directly testifies to what you believe God is. Therefore, 
exactly based on the mitzvah you did, exactly based on the amount of testimonies you did, if you testify consistently that God exists by doing the mitzvahs which ultimately state that God is the only being, then you will experience God as the only being in Olam Habo, the future world, in direct proportion to what you testify to. If on the contrary you testified reverse, that God does not exist or He exists besides you because you did a sin, then you will experience God that much less in Olam Habo because you testify that you also are. So God says, you think you also are? So you remain with that illusion and you will have less of who I really am. Mida connected Mida, measure for measure. You think you're somebody, then you remain thinking you're somebody. So we see, therefore, <coughs> that every mitzvah is a conflict of Enei Milvadoi or Yeshid Milvadoi. Does God, is God the source of all being, the only one that really exists, or is God the reverse? Not the source of all being, there are independent beings, and we exist independent of Him. Therefore, we come now this is the equation that the purpose of man is to remove the concealment of God's illusion that he is one. How do we do it? By testifying that he is one. And we experience that testimony, that oneness in Ulam Habba. You see, it's an exact equation. It has a beautiful simplicity. That's really what it is. It's a beautiful, simple, harmonious structure based on the concept of oneness. Therefore, we see that the reality conforms to the mitzvah. If you express the mitzvah, God removes his concealment based on your testimony. In other words, there's greater gili yuchudoi, the revelation of God's absolute oneness. If you do an avera, then that's the reverse testimony. Therefore, there is an exact and equal opposite reaction called hesti yuchudoi, which means God then conceals his oneness. <clears throat> and by the way, just as an aside, you know there's Newton has three laws of physics. The laws of the universe are based on what man must be in, the condition of man in order to fulfill the, the purpose of God. Since man must be in the, in, in the uh, state whereby if he does something, then there's an exact and opposite reaction. If you testify to God, then there's an exact and opposite reaction that you experience that oneness. If you testify to the other side of God, that God, that you are also independent, there's an exact and opposite also reaction that you do not have the experiencing that oneness. Does that sound familiar? That's the third law. For every motion, there's an exact opposite and equal reaction. That exists in this world. It's not only a law of motion. It is a law of action of man. And it follows also into the law of motion. That principle is embedded in the ex existential form of creation because that is really what man, the structure of man is. If you do something, then you must experience an exact opposite equal reaction. If you testify to his oneness, you get that. If you testify to his, uh, if you negate the concept of his oneness, then of course you receive the experience of the opposite of his oneness. That's just a, a, as, as an aside. I can go through the other laws of motion, but it's not for now. In any case, um, therefore, this is what we see. Now, where do we see this? And I'll tell you a very interesting idea. 
the fundamental statement that a Jew makes that sum, uh, summarizes his entire life's work is one idea, one statement. And that statement is, Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel, Hashem Lokeinu, the Lord our God, Hashem Echad, the Lord is one. That is the greatest, most fundamental statement the Jew makes. In fact, he's supposed to make it before he dies. Now, did you ever ask yourself, why do we say, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one? Why? Why don't we say, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is good, the Lord is kind, the Lord is smart, right? Why do they pick out oneness? Why oneness? Why does our life have to be the endeavor of proclaiming hero Israel? Remember, I'm proclaiming this to Israel, that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Why only that attribute? Why not other attributes? And now you understand. Because the entire purpose of creation is not to know God is good, not to know He is kind. Those themselves are merely vehicles to the greater understanding that God is one, that He is absolute. He is... He is the source of all being, He's the only thing that exists, and He's the absolute master. That is absolute oneness, total oneness. That is why, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The entire culmination of every Jew's life is really that statement, because that is the purpose of creation. Now you see why it fits, why that is what we say regarding God. And of course, the last letter of Shema is an ayin, and the last letter of Echod is a Dalad, and that means aid, witness. Because you must be a witness that God is one. That is why the Shema, when you're finally going to say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, you're going to talk about His oneness and nothing else. Because creation pivots around the idea of His absolute, total oneness. Now, <clears throat> that is the reason why we have the idea called Shema. Most people do not know that. They know Shema is very significant. They know that it is the greatest proclamation that you can make. But they've never asked themselves why it says one, why that's what we have to proclaim. You now know, because oneness is the pivot of all creation. Therefore, that is what we proclaim. That is our task, to testify to oneness through the mitzvahs. And we get that testimony. That testimony brings God back into creation and we experience that oneness. Now, the task of man addresses itself to the four dimensions of man. What are the four dimensions of man? <laughs> man is a physical being. Therefore, man has physical tasks. What are they? The physical task of man is what's called mitzvahs regarding acts and speech. There are many mitzvahs which we do which are action. Uh, uh, eating uh, lulav, sitting in a sukkah, and so on. Numerous them, uh, um, uh, putting on film or whatever. Then there are acts which involve speech. Praying, right? Different utterances or statements that we have to make, and so on. That is the physical dimension of man. Therefore, the task of man to testify to the oneness of God, there has to be certain mitzvahs on the plane of physicality. Okay? That's the physical task that man has to engage in. Declare oneness of God in your physical dimension. The second dimension of man is the mental dimension or the intellectual dimension of man. That dimension also requires commandments or mitzvahs whereby you testify to his oneness on that dimension. What do we do with our minds? We learn Torah, 
we hear shiurim, that's what we do with our minds. Also, we think about God, we maintain a belief in God, we have kavona, we have intent when we do a mitzvah, and so on. The entire area where the mind either contributes to the performance of another mitzvah, an act, or where the mitzvah itself is mental. That is the mitzvahs that take place on the mental dimension of man. Okay, So man, therefore, must declare the oneness of God, testimony of God's oneness, not only on the physical dimension, but also in the mental plane. The third area of man, the dimension of man, is called emotional. The emotional area of man, the area of feelings, affect, emotions. Man must declare the oneness of God with his emotions. How? You must love God, right? You must fear God. You must develop certain characteristics. For instance, having kindness toward others, feeling pity and so on. This is the emotional dimension of man. And God wants man to declare his oneness via that third dimension, which is the emotional dimension of man. There is one more dimension of man, and man has a task. This is unusual. Man must declare the oneness of God with his spiritual dimension. What does that mean? That is called the meditative avodah. It is the series of tasks which a man performs, which comprise the concept of meditation, whereby he declares the oneness of God. Okay? But it's more than a declaration of the oneness of God. Through the process of meditation, through the meditative avodah, through the meditative area of work in serving God, one not only testifies to the oneness of God, but I'll tell you something interesting. One perceives the oneness of God, not merely testifies. In other words, divine inspiration, Ruach HaKodesh, prophecy, Nevoah, is achieved through the meditative avodah. In other words, the Rabbanishnam wants man to testify to the oneness of God. And those are the areas of the physical task, the mental task, and the emotional task. Those dimensions in man, God wants man to testify to his oneness. <clears throat> However, in the area of meditation or in the spiritual aspect of man, which we'll understand much more later on, God wants man in this world, <clears throat> before you die, to experience who God is, to actually perceive who God is. <clears throat> in other words, it's very interesting. There was a point in time, <clears throat> and we will understand that much better <clears throat> when we get into <clears throat> the uh, history <clears throat> of meditation. The Rabbanishnam wanted man to end the journey of who God is. He actually wanted man to experience God himself in this world without leaving the body. Somehow man can transcend himself and actually perceive God in some other dimension, some other form, without leaving the body. In other words, the culmination of the Avoida, of the journey of man, would result in man's actually experiencing God. This was true for a long period of Jewish history. However, it is not true today. It is true on certain levels, which we'll talk about when we get into prophecy, but it is no more true on that level itself. Therefore, those are the four levels of Avedah. The physical task, 
the mental task, the emotional task, where man declares or testifies to the oneness of God, and the meditative area, which is the, the task, the spiritual task, where a man actually engages in certain labors to perceive God, not merely to testify to God's oneness. And that is really the concept of meditation fits exactly into Judaism. That is where the concept integrates with the structure. That is why meditation is not a foreign idea. It's not something which Judaism borrows from the East. And it is nothing we have to apologize for. Meditation is an intrinsic part of the Jewish experience, the Jewish Avodah. But it is not part of the Avodah now. And we will see that there are aspects of meditation that a person can engage in, even now. But basically, meditation is part of Judaism, the Avodah of Judaism. Now, let's go further. In order for man to influence or remove Hester from the universe, okay, by the way, I'm now ending the concept of the task. We have gone to the task. We know what the objectives of man is, according to Judaism. We know how the, what the task is to do mitzvahs, which is a testimony of the oneness of God, which is, will get you that perception of oneness at the time that the oneness is revealed. And we know that the deficiency of the universe was created with, of course, is the absence of that perception of oneness. So we see exact harmonious structure of uh, where everything pivots around the concept of oneness. Now, <clears throat> in order for man to influence or remove Hester through what? Through the testimony of God, right? Or the testimony of oneness of God. In order for man to remove the Hester, in other words, in order for man to massacre the Bria, and now we become professionals, we now could use the word Tikkun, in order for man, or the Jew, because that's who does it today, to actually remove the, the uh, concealment of the presence of God or his oneness in creation, in order for the Jew to bring a Tikkun to the world, through all the world, not only this world, he must exist on all four existential planes. Man has to be existing on all four existential dimensions in order for him to effect all the Elamas or all the areas where God's presence or true nature to this world or relationship to this world uh, is concealed. Now, how does this occur? How can this be? How is it possible for a man to remove the Hester, to remove the concealment of God's oneness from this world, how can we remove it from all creation if all we are is here? We are not there. We do not exist on those planes. We can barely do it here, let alone there. How are we going to do it? That's the next area that we have to go into. And in order to understand that, we are going to have to go into the concept of self, who is self? What is a self? The next concept we have to explore is the concept of mind. What is the mind? And we want to understand the structure of the self and the mind, the components and the elements. And then after that, we are going to go into the spiritual structure of man, what the soul is, and so on, all the components of man. Then we will we'll be able to understand that idea. Okay? In order to understand 
how man can massacre the universe creation. <clears throat> we must be clear in our understanding of the concepts of self, mind, the elements of self and mind, and the spiritual counterparts of self and mind. Once we understand that, then you will see that we will merely slip into our understanding of this fundamental area. And if we understand this area, it will give us a profound understanding of many, many areas that are not even discussed in this year. Now, <clears throat> self. What is the self? That's a rather funny question because everybody's sitting here listening to me. Everybody has selves. Okay, let's begin our understanding of self. Self is an indivisible and discrete entity or being. What does that mean? When we say that self is an indivisible being, what that means is that you are not two, but you are one. You are one self, one being. You are not two people or selves. Self cannot be divided in two. In other words, I can't walk over to you and split you in two. The self does not, does not admit of plurality. It doesn't uh, accept multiplicity. There is only one entity self, and that is indivisible, which is contrary to all other entities in this world. Everything can be split, further split, further split. The self cannot be split. Just like God cannot be split, the self cannot be split also. That's what it means to be indivisible. The self is also discrete. In other words, that you as a self are distinct and you are differentiated from other selves. In other words, there are clearly boundaries between selves. You are not the same as other self. You experience distinction or differentiation from other beings. Therefore, we have two ideas, two very basic ideas about self. Self is indivisible and self is discrete. There is only one self, it's not capable of division, and self has boundaries in the sense that there are many selves, each self being distinct from other selves. Now, <clears throat> self has an intrinsic identity and an extrinsic identity. In other words, self has an identity which is intrinsic, self has an identity which is extrinsic, and I will explain. Self possesses an intrinsic identity. What does that mean? In other words, it possesses an identity whereby it is recognized as differentiated from other selves. There is something about you that you know is you and not somebody else. That's what it means. That you have some kind of an, a feeling of self, that you know you're you and that you're not somebody else. We don't know what that intrinsic identity is, but it's there. And it gives you the feeling that you are you, you are unique, you are not somebody else. If you didn't have that intrinsic identity, then you would begin to feel that you are other. The boundaries between self and other would become vague and clouded. Therefore, self has an intrinsic identity where it is recognized as differentiated from other selves. Also, whereby it is seen to be the same self no matter what garb it, is, it assumes. In other words, you know that no matter what suit of clothes you put on, you know that you are still you. You didn't become somebody else. You still have the feeling that you are you, even though you put somebody, some, some other suit of clothes on. We will see that self has a garb. 
and that garb is the extrinsic identity. But no matter what body you assume, and you are capable of assuming many bodies, you always know who you are no matter how many bodies you assume. That's what it means that there is an intrinsic identity. The self has an intrinsic identity whereby it always recognizes who it is as distinct from others, and it knows who it is no matter what garb it assumes. In other words, through the intrinsic identity of the self, identification, in other words, who you are, the sameness of who you are, and differentiation, the fact that you are not other, is, is always achieved. Now, self neither comprehends its true nature, nor does it perceive its intrinsic identity. You don't know who you really are. You're all sitting here looking out. Nobody in this room knows who you really are. Self does not know its own nature. It is a complete and absolute mystery of who you are, the self, divested of all garb. You do not know who your true nature is, nor do you perceive the identity that your nature has that can identify you as always being the same and identifies you as being different from other. You know neither, neither your nature nor your intrinsic identity. But that doesn't stop you from having a sense of self and a sense of closeness to who you really are. That is the intrinsic identity of self. Now, self also possessing, possesses an extrinsic identity. That's called a personal identity. How? Through its garb. In other words, through the garb, it recognizes that it is what it is, and it is not the same as an, another self. Now, it is important to know that you are not identical with your garb. You are not the body. You are a self in the body, the body is your garb, which you assume for a certain period of, period of time. In other, words, you in other words, you inhabit or you reside or you are the owner of the garb, but you are not identical with the garb. Now, what does the garb consist of? Well, it consists of one, the body. You, self, all of you, have a body, a physical body, wherein you reside. The second aspect of the garb is that you all have personality. Now, what is personality? Personality, psychologically speaking, is the total behavioral pattern of a person. That's what personality is. It is the total behavioral manifestation pattern that a person exhibits. Now. Personality, by the way, is learned. You do not inherit personality. You cannot blame it on your mothers and fathers if you're not satisfied with who you are. It is learned. It is consistent. You will never change your personality. It is possible to unlearn. That's the only way you can change personality. And that's what therapy tries to do, by the way, is that you should unlearn what you think you really are. But if you do not unlearn who you are, you cannot change personality. And the third aspect of personality is that it's predictable. Since it is always consistent, it is always predictable. In other words, if I meet you today, I see you one way. If I see you over a week, 
you will become after a while predictable because you always behave in a certain amount of a certain way and all it is is I have to see you the total range of your behaviors and then I know who you are I know your personality it's not possible for me to see you four years from now and see a completely different person you may have changed because there is the aspect of change that is built in but that again proceeds through the process of learning but basically personality is a learned, consistent, and predictable phenomena. That is what is personality. That's what personality is. And just as an aside, there is a difference between personality and temperament, or constitution. And many times they are confused. Personality is a learned phenomena. It is a total behavioral pattern that a person has because that's what he learned. Temperament or constitution is not learned, it is inherited, and it consists of basically four, four elements. <coughs> Stimulus sensitivity. All infants, infants differ in the amount that they are sensitive towards stimulus. You'll notice infants, some infants cry at the slightest noise, and some infants don't care. Some infants don't mind if they're in a diaper and it's wet. They don't mind if they're there all day, and some infants can't take it for uh, 10 minutes. For those of you who are mothers, they certainly know what I mean. That's called stimulus sensitivity. That is not learned. That is inherited. The amount that you react towards stimulus, how sensitive you are, is an inherited predisposition or tendency. That is part of temperament or constitution. The second idea in temperament or constitution is what's called vigor or energy level. Some infants are very active. Some infants are very quiet. They don't move around a lot. That is also part of temperament. Now that makes a big difference later on as you grow up, and so on, if you're active or passive or whatever. The third area which is inherited is basically the capacity for intelligence or alertness. Even though <clears throat> intelligence uh, is shaped by environment to a great extent, but there is a certain innate amount or capacity for intelligence. And the fourth area is what's called stress tolerance that a person only has a certain amount of tolerance for psychic pain and tension. Beyond that, he can't take. And you are born with that. Now, environment shapes a great deal of what you are born with, but there's a certain amount that you come into the world with. That is what's called temperament or constitution. That is not personality. Personality, on the other hand, is learnt, consistent, and predictable. Now, personality, as I was saying, is the second element of the garb that the self assumes. Personality has three areas. The first area is characteristics or traits. That is the first area of personality. The second area of personality is called the behavioral patterns or modes that a person uses toward need fulfillment. How do you go about getting a job? How do you go about getting food? Your entire behavioral pattern as you want to fulfill a need how do you do it? And that is learned because you know one way succeeds, the other way fails. That is the second aspect of personality. That is, make, that is what makes you, you. And the third area of personality is reactive patterns. How do you avoid or how do you re stay away from threats, obstructions or stress? Those three ideas constitute personality. Uh, the characteristics or traits, what you have, 
the behavioral patterns that you employ toward need fulfillment, and the reactive patterns against threats, obstructions, or stress. Those all stamp you for who you really are. That's personality, and that is a second distinct feature of the garb. Remember, this garb is the extrinsic identity, and this is your personal identity. The third distinct feature of the garb is what's called your experiences, what you went through. You know yourself not only because you know what body you have and what kind of personality you have, because you know what you do in all these different areas of personality, but you also know yourself because you have peculiar kinds of thoughts. You have certain kinds of images. You know yourself because you have certain feelings. And also you know yourself because you have certain kinds of sensory and bodily sensations. You feel things coming from your body, not emotion, but you sense things from your body, and you sense things coming in from the senses. You see things, you hear things, and so on. <clears throat> Those uh, four things are what's called the experiences of a person. So you know yourself through body, because you know who your body is. You know yourself through personality. And you know yourself also through the experiences that you have gone through. That is the way you identify yourself. And you know that you are you, and you are not somebody else. The fourth area of the garb, or element of the garb, is called past memories. You know who you are because you remember specific and distinct things that you, happened to you. If you went into another body, you would know who you are because you take with you past memories, assuming you do. Now, could you imagine if you did not have the same body, if you did not have the same personality, if you did not have the same experiences, and you had no past memories, then who, I ask, are you? Because you would not know who you are. Because everything that you know yourself as has been stripped away. You have no extrinsic identity. You have no personal identity from which you can identify yourself. The only way you can know who you are and who you are as distinct from something else is through your intrinsic identity. And if you do not feel who your intrinsic identity is when you leave the, bo the body, you have what's called an awful lot of tsaras. Now, of course you do, you do know the intrinsic identity when you leave the body. But it is only when we are in the body that we do not know who we really are. We assume that we really are the body, the personality, the experiences, and the memory. Because that's the only way we can find ourselves and locate ourselves. Now, in other words, it comes out that the garb of the, of the body, which is the extrinsic identity, which is the body, the personality, the experiences, and the past memory, enables the self to achieve an extrinsic or personal identity it enables you to achieve what's called a working identity, because that's the only thing that works for you here, whereby the self can comprehend your nature because you all think that you are your body, because that's what you think you are. It enables you to identify who you are, the sameness, when you put on a different clothes, when you go to a different spot, you know who you are, because these things always follow you. And it also enables you to differentiate yourself from other selves. That's what these things enable you. They give you an extrinsic identity or a personal identity. And I want to mention something. That this extrinsic or personal identity which you achieve through your garb is really an illusion. 
You are not any of these things. There is something about you, which we will talk about, that is, has nothing to do with these ideas. And that is who you really are, your intrinsic identity, and who your true nature is. Now, let's go further in our understanding of self. There's another also very fascinating area. Now, these ideas are crucial to understand if you want to understand meditation and if you want to understand the Eastern religions. This is the only way you're going to do it. Because they, they deal with the understanding of these ideas. Now, the self is aware of or conscious of its own existence. You know how? Through its continuously experiencing reality. In other words, and this is very, very mystical, it comprehends its existence always through some perception. In other words, through the thought, an image, a feeling, a sensory or bodily sensation. In other words, while you are thinking, you know you are. In the very act of perception itself, in other words, it senses its own being through the very act of perception itself. Self cannot or does not observe itself or sense its being except through the perception it experiences. That is a very bizarre kind of thought, but it's true if you think about it. There is no way you can experience self only when you are exercising being or experiencing reality, either through a thought because that's the only way you experience. The only way you experience reality is one of four ways. Either you think, you feel, okay? You have images or you, you have sensations from the body or from the senses. That's, all you, that's the only way you experience reality. I don't know if you realize how narrow is your lock-in toward reality. It is only when you are experiencing those things that you feel behind the thinking is the self. If you stopped thinking, stopped feeling, stopped seeing things in your mind, and stopped sensing, whether from the body or from the senses, what would you experience? Nothing. Would you experience self? How? What is self? I leave you with those ideas because we're going to explore them at greater length when we go into yoga. Okay? Therefore, the only way you experience self, remember, is through your experiencing reality. In other words, while you think, ah, I, I think so behind the thought is the self. Behind the feeling, I know I am because I feel. Sounds familiar, Descartes? I think, therefore I am. Now you know what he means. You can only experience the self or the self behind the thought, why you are thinking, why you are feeling, why you are sensing, why you are imagining. You cannot experience self any other way. It's a very bizarre statement. And uh, it leads to very interesting conclusions. Now, in other words, the statement is this, that self only perceives itself through the act of experiencing reality. Self does not know or sense its existence through the self as self alone. 
In other words, if you divorced yourself from all thought, all feeling, all sensations, and all images, you would not feel self, or supposedly, you would not feel self as self through self. It was, I know who I am through the self, by myself. And I don't have to use a vehicle, an instrument, which means experiencing reality, to feel self. Now, we don't do that. Can it be achieved? We'll see. Okay? But that's a very interesting idea. In other words, can you perceive the self? Can the self know itself through itself without experiencing reality at the same time? Interesting. We'll think about it and we'll see. <clears throat> now, <coughs> in addition, the self has awareness or it has consciousness of its garb and external reality. You know who you are and you know external reality. Now, the self also has what's called self-awareness. In other words, the self is aware that it has the faculty of awareness. In other words, you are aware that you are aware. You are, you not only you not only know reality, but you know that you know reality. And you know that you're a self. These are all called self-awareness. You know that you are a self. You know that you are aware. And you, you know or you are aware that you know. Man is the only creature, entity, as far as we know, that has self-awareness. Animals do not have self-awareness. They have they know things, but they do not have self-awareness. That is the awareness of an abstract entity called self. That there is a self, that self has awareness, and that self knows it knows. That's self-awareness, and that's a higher order, a higher level of thinking that only man possesses. <clears throat> now... Self is the owner or, or the possessor of the thoughts, the images, feelings, and sensations, bodily or sensory. You own them. You are not them. You are not your thought. You are not the feeling. You are not the sensation, bodily or sensory, and you're not the image. You own them. You possess them. That is, a f that is an activity in which you engage in. In other words, self is not the experience itself but you have experiences. That is all I want to talk about, the self. <laughs> we are now up to the concept of mind. Now, we now come to the concept of mind and its elements. Before we try and understand what the self was, and we have some kind of understanding, or we have some kind of understanding of what we really don't understand. We now come to the concept of mind and we will try to de derive the same thing, to understand what we don't understand. Now, what is mind? Mind is based in and it emerges from the physical organ called the brain. That is the location of your mind. In other words, your mind is located in the physical organ called your brain and nowhere else. The second idea is that 
mind is where all mental activity or phenomena take place. That is where everything happens, is the mind. In other words, the mind, therefore, is the repository of all mental activity and phenomena. That's what the mind is. All mental activity and phenomena occur in the mind, and it's the repository where every mental activity and phenomena take place. Now, the existential dimension of the mind is called the mental plane, as opposed to the existential dimension of the body, which is called the physical plane. That is the plane of existence in the mind, mental, whereas in body it's physical. The mind consists of the following mental activities. What goes on in the mind? Well, there's only four things, or well, actually there's more, but these are basically things that go on in the mind. And remember, the mind is the place where mental activity occurs. It is the dimension where the mental plane exists in. What happens, or rather, what are the mental activities which the, which the mind um, uh, employs or which happens, occurs in the mind? The first is called thoughts. Thoughts occur in the mind. It is a mental activity that exists in a mental plane, and this occurs in the mind. Now, thoughts mean ideas, concepts, or whatever. Thoughts also mean recall of ideas, and that's memory. You can think about a previous idea that you remember that you once had. That's recall. So thoughts, memories, this is the first activity of the mind. Another mental activity of the mind is called perceptions or images. That's the imagination. Actually, the thoughts was the faculty of the intellect. It is the intellect which is the structure that gives rise to thoughts and reasoning. It is the imagination in the mind that gives rise to images and perceptions. Okay? In other words, the mind is the repository for certain faculties. One of them is called the intellect, and the intellect gives rise to thoughts, reasoning, and so on. And reasoning consists of concepts, judgments, syllogisms, and so on. It is the imagination that gives rise to images and perceptions. It is the memory that allows the, the uh, imagination to recall former images. It is the memory that allows the intellect to recall former thoughts. Now, the, uh, the uh, next activity of the mind is called feelings or affect. That's the next thing we do with our mind, or that's the next thing we experience in our mind. We feel. And feelings occur on the mental plane. The next idea is called sensations. We sense something, either from the senses or the body. What does that mean? For instance, somebody bangs on the table. That creates sound waves, which is physical. Hits against our eardrum, vibrates the nerves, and goes into the brain. What do we hear? We do not hear a sound. We hear a mental representation of what that sound is. That's what we hear. We do not hear a sound. We hear a mental representation. And that occurs in the mind. That is why sensations, whether it be from the body or from the senses, is really mental. Which brings us to an interesting idea as an aside, that we do not know if we are all experiencing the same thing. 
Because the truth is, the way you experience reality is purely in the mind. It's all mental. I don't know if you're looking or seeing the same thing I do. Who knows? You may see an entirely different reality than I do. For instance, this tape recorder is black. Now, I see something, and I know that's black. I don't know, maybe you see it's brown, and you, because everybody called that black, so you also call that black. You see? We will never know if we are experiencing the same reality. It's impossible. The only way you will know if, I ex if you are experiencing the same reality that I am is if you are me. Barring that, we never know if we are really experiencing the same reality. Because we are not experiencing the externals. We are experiencing everything in the mind. Everything is a mental representation of external things, you see. So therefore, we really don't know if we are experiencing the real, or, or ra rather the same things. Now, the fifth area of the mind, or what the mind engages, is called the will. And I'll explain that in a minute. The sixth area of what the mind engages, engages in is called consciousness or awareness. In other words, the ability to be awake, the ability to be aware or conscious of reality, any reality outside of self, is a mental activity. <clears throat> Some people employ consciousness more than others. There are certain people who are more turned off than they are turned on. Uh, but that varies from individual to individual. In any case, consciousness or awareness is a mental activity that happens because of the mind. Now, <clears throat> I had left off with will. What is the will? Interesting idea. Okay. The self, of which all of you are, that exists in the mind, because the self, by the way, exists in the mental plane, not the physical plane. The self which resides or exists in the mind decides something. It makes a decision. When it makes a decision, it wills. What does willing mean? Now, what willing means is that there is a mechanism that exists between the self and the body that connects the self to the body and all of a sudden, it triggers physical action. In other words, the will means that there is some mechanism that is turned on that triggers physical action. In other words, there is a mechanism that exists between the self and the body. There is a mechanism that activates or it fires the brain cells, which then fires the nerve cells, which then fires the muscle cells, and physical or bodily action results. In other words, what is the connection between the self and the brain? We don't know. Nobody knows. That is called the will. In some way, I want to lift this hand. So all I know is I've decided, self has decided that this hand must rise. And I want to lift it. I don't know how, why this hand arises. Because the brain has to fire and begin the whole process. But all I know is I will and bam, it rises. Now, I don't know why. There is nobody that knows why. Nobody kn knows even what the self is, let alone how the self connects with the body, right? That's the will. So when you will something, what you are really doing is engaging or activating the mechanism that turns on the brain, and then it just goes 
progresses from there on. But between the self and the body is a mysterious mechanism that nobody knows what it is or where it is. Now, therefore, the will is the faculty in the mind that the self uses to activate or fire up brain cells, to initiate physical action, in other words, action in the physical plane. <clears throat> self resides in the mind and is not synonymous or identical with the mind, nor is it an, it, nor is it an activity of mind. You are not your mind. You reside in your mind. And the self is not an activity of the mind. In other words, you don't pop out of your mind. In other words, you are not the result of a mental activity, as, some has, as has been suggested by some scientists, that self itself is an activity of mind. Because then who, is, who started the mind generating to pop out the self? You know, it's putting the cart before the horse. But in any case, self is not an activity of mind but rather is an entity which is independent of mind. It uses mind, self uses mind, to interface with the physical world. That's the way you get around. You use the mind to interface, to interact with the physical world. Self exists in the mental plane, the mental sphere, or the mental dimension. That's where you are located. You are not located on the physical plane. You are located in the mind, and you interface with the world through the device called mind via its many faculties, imagination, intellect, will, and so on. The self receives input from the world, from the physical world, through the mind, and therefore it receives this input on the mental plane, as I had mentioned. You think, feel, imagine, and you sense all in the mind. And that's all you do. I don't know if you realize that. But that's the total extent of your experiencing reality. You're either thinking, you're either feeling, you're either sensing, or you're either imagining, or you're either asleep. In which case, there is no consciousness about any of these activities. There's nothing else you do. That's the extent of your involvement with reality. I say this not to give you an inferiority complex, but to express a reality of how limited really we are in our confrontation with reality. And we've got to interpret reality via this little thing called the mind. We've got to figure out this entire Bria. Now, <clears throat> self interacts with the physical world through the mind to achieve its desires and goals. Because once you can will and, and, and activate the brain and activates the action, you now can involve yourself or interact with the world and of course fulfill any desires or goals. Through the faculty of the will or the mechanism of, of the will in the mind, it triggers brain cells to fire impulses to fire muscle cells, which of course initiates physical action and these Physical actions will fulfill your motives and satisfy your needs and your drives. Now, this is the concept of mind that I want to discuss. So we see the ideas of self, and we see what mind is. That it is a, an, it is a, an, is, it is a concept, an abstract idea, in which all mental activities take place. And they take place on the mental plane. And we see that self resides in the mind, 
And it is through the mind that we perceive reality. 